it's Wednesday night and I'm trying to introduce you and finish a work that we've been studying on books that you need to learn from. If you do not understand the social structure and the languages and their the way they talked, their uh, emotional speeches and how they spoke and what they meant when they said something, you're not really going to have a full understanding of the Bible. I've got several books I show you this last week. The Mystery Religions, it'll tell you about... You say, that sounds mysterious to me. It was nothing but the but the sun and tree worship religions. They had the religions of Greece, the mystery religions. The reason it was a mystery, you had to be initiated into Venus worship or Jupiter worship or if you were over here in Greece or if you're in Rome, Jupiter over here or Venus or Aphrodite over here in Greece, you had to be initiated. That's why they called it a mystery religion. So the mystery religions are the same thing that Constantine brought in the church and renamed Christ's Mass. It's the same thing. This will inform you on a lot of things. This is by a man named Samuel Angus. He's the guy that I read from last week, and he said there was... He said they had a different dialect. of the Greek common street language. And the common street language, common is the word koinos. And koinos comes from the word, we get the word koine, K-O-I-N-E, which is what they call the common street language. And he's the one that tells us that they had a different dialect of the Greek in every city-state. And we've been talking about Acts 2, where Peter, this has nothing to do with what the Pentecostals say. You have to just simply just dismiss all of their sociological structure, uh, what's going on at Pentecostal, believe Pentecostalism. It's just not true what they're saying. And uh, so they had this different dialect And he will tell you that these dialects would differ as much as Spanish and Italian in our day and time, Spanish. And just because you can speak Spanish don't mean you can speak Italian. You will recognize a word once in a while. I'll recognize a Spanish word. I'll recognize diabolos, devil, and it'll be the same thing in the Italian or in the Latin, or in the Greek. So I'll recognize that, but it don't mean I can speak either one of them because I can't. Now, when they said in Acts 2, how hear we every man, every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, these were Jews. This is the key. This is the key to the entire chapter, or to actually the entire uh, thing that was happening in history. These were Jews 
from every nation under heaven. And the whole point is, how did they, how did the Jews end up in every nation under heaven? Well, they were scattered there because of their idolatry worship in the Old Testament. While they were a kingdom <coughs> under kings from Saul all the way to Zedekiah, the last king of southern Judah, and they had gone after Baal, Grove, Shemosh, Molech, Isis, Osiris, all the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. They went after all those gods, and God says, if you're not repentant, I'm going to scatter you all over the world. Well, he scattered northern Israel in 722 B.C., and he scattered southern Judah in 586 B.C., So the Jews are scattered all over the world. It was Babylon that scattered southern Judah. It was was Assyria that scattered northern Israel. You'll find Assyria scattering Israel in 2 Kings, the 17th chapter. And you'll find southern Judah scattered in 2 Kings, the 25th chapter, and in 2 Chronicles, the 36th chapter. Same event. You can read both of them and get a better picture if you read both of them. And there's other places you can read that too. So it's men like Samuel Angus who has studied this. I didn't make this up whenever I'm teaching these things. And I'm introducing you to some books. There's books that you need to learn to buy. Now I know most of you won't buy them. And most of you don't have time to read them. But I've bought them and read them over the years. And then you have books like Paul's Metaphors. A metaphor is a saying, and he'll tell you, this is David Williams, but he's not the only one who has a book like that. I've got, I got dozens of books like this. I just picked up one of them to bring it with me. Paul's Metaphors. A metaphor is a saying. When Paul said there in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I believe it's the ninth chapter, he says, uh, to the Jew became I as a Jew that I might gain the Jew I became as a Greek to the Greek that I might gain the Greek he said I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some but you're not going to know what he's saying unless you know something about the culture he lived in and where he got these sayings these Greeks everybody that was I'm not talking about somebody just from Greece. They called everybody in the world a Greek. Why? Because Alexander the Great, Alex the Great, he had lived from around 332 B.C. until he died in around 320 B.C. He wasn't a very old man, but he was a he was a young man when he died, and he was very intelligent and implemented all the philosophies all the philosophies and the different philosophers two of the most popular were the Epicureans and the Stoics. Some spell it S-T-O-I-C-K-S. The Stoics. 
Stoicism and Epicureanism was uh, it was the two most popular philosophies, and these guys came up with some some things that actually explain the scripture and it explains away a lot of this superstition in some of these churches the I have given you this by the Epicureans uh, <coughs> they said <coughs> what do we mean <coughs> what do we mean when we say Epicurean Huh? Has to do with the belly. Has to do with <clears throat> what do we mean? See, he's an Epicurean. A connoisseur of foods. Connoisseur of good foods and wines and so forth. That's what we mean. <clears throat> That's an old <clears throat> Epicurean saying. I've got some books that say Hellenistic philosophy. You open it up, it'll take into Epicurean language, Stoic language. <clears throat> and when you get into the... You can't just say, I just read the Bible, I don't read nothing else. That's ignorant. You can't just read a book and not know what anything means. <clears throat> excuse me. Excuse me. <clears throat> the Epicureans said the belly was the seat of all desires, sensual, spiritual, it's all the God you needed was to fill up your own personal desires, and that was the belly. That's why Paul said, <clears throat> some men there at Philippi, they hate the cross of Christ because their God is their belly, and their mind, their phroneo, P-H-R-O-N-E-O, their sentiment, their emotions. Their sentiment is on earthly things. This is why man's God is their belly. Earthly things. Earthly is the word gay. It means soil or dirt. They like dirt. Everything that you see, anything that enters into your eyes that you can get a vision of is dirt your dirt I'm dirt your car is dirt your house is dirt your apartment's dirt the money they pay you with is dirt and that's the thing that's not important when dirt is your God when your diamond ring it's dirt all a diamond is is a piece of coal under pressure for about 10,000 years that's all it is same thing as coal. You could put a piece of coal on your finger, and you could have the same thing on your finger if you can. Your finger, F A N G E R. <laughs> you're gonna, you gonna have that on. You might as well buy a piece of coal and just say, "Lord, put this under pressure for about ten thousand years, and then you'll have a diamond." <clears throat> the reason men's God is their belly, and Paul said. He said, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine ye have learned, and avoid these people, because they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. Everybody knew what that meant when he said it was by good words and fair speeches, men who love their belly, they hate the crucifying self, they hate a daily cross. 
All of America hates the daily cross. Ask anybody, do you want to be crucified? I was at one of my doctors the other day. I was at my heart doctor. And he's and uh, he knows I don't like any politicians. So he tries to uh, get just discuss politics. He thinks I'm funny because I get so blunt with him. And he mentioned Donald Trump. I said, he's a clown. He said, he really is a clown, isn't he? And I said, yeah, he really is. And what I do is I work my way into saying something. I don't try to take over the conversation. Working my way into go boom, 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 like that while he's not looking. Because he wants to control the conversation. I let him until he gets to this spot. And I said, my whole concern in life is to, is to crucify self, die daily, and, and uh, deny the flesh. And I said, Donald Trump don't know anything about that. And that doctor didn't either. So I knew that was hitting him between the eyes. And I said, that's what my purpose in life is as opposed to these guys. So these people who live in the world, their God is their belly. If all you care about is a new car and a new house and a new this and a new that, I don't care about anything material. I really don't. I just, I could live in a, a room... I look out for my wife, and that's all. Not me. I am the simple, simple man. Anyway, the Stoics, but how are you going to know that when you see belly? That, that's a Stoic term. It meant to fulfill all your fleshly desires. It doesn't just mean fill up your stomach. It means anything that you want, that's your belly. And their God is their belly. And the Stoics, had a they had a term that's probably... It has been one of the most confusing scriptures in all the Bible. The Pentecostals has gone crazy with it. And they don't have any idea what it's about. And it was a Stoic term. And a man named Zeno started Stoicism. It was around in the neighborhood of 320 B.C. And for 320 years... Till the time of Jesus coming to John the Baptist, which was in 30 A.D. So we're talking about 350 years. They had a saying that Mr. Zeno came up with and created. And boy, the Pentecostals have gone nuts with it. John the Baptist is standing on the banks of the Jordan River. And he used a stoic metaphor so that everyone listening would know exactly what he's talking about. And Mr. Zeno had said, all this universe, he said it was a living, breathing entity. Now I got this out of a book called Harvest of Hellenism. Harvest. This is what's funny. Harvest of Hellenism. If you find this, it's a fantastic book. It's an old book, not real old, but printed back in the 80s or 70s, something like that. Hellenism. Hellas, H-E-L-L-E-S, that was a term for culturalization of the Greek world. It was the spreading of the Greek language, the spreading of of their philosophies, of their idioms, their metaphors, and I started to tell you a while ago, all of the world, 
all of the world was called Greeks because we had their languages left over from Alexander the Great when he died in 320 he'd give us all these dialects he'd give us all of the glossa which means foreign language and dialectos and glossa those are two of the words translated tongue it's not Pentecostal tongue it just means a language a foreign language that's all it means and when they said how hear we ever man in our own tongue wherein we were born they said how do we hear in our own dialect where we were born in the world they were coming to coming to Israel for the festivals that was required of all the males and you're going to learn more about that in this in a couple of books called Jewish People in the First Century Compendia Rerum Idiocarum Ad Novum Testamentum Section 1 Jewish People in the First Century Historical Geography Political History Social, Cultural and Religious Life and Institutions These are some magnificent books. You will find out the truth about tongues by reading out of these. Let me tell you about the about this this saying that John the Baptist used one of Zeno's one of his one of the stoic metaphors of the day. And everybody had been hearing this metaphor for at least 350 years and everyone knew what it meant. Mr. Zeno said all of the universe was a living entity. I'm a living entity. I'm a living entity. I'm made up of a whole bunch of atoms. Trillions of atoms. And atoms are just little bitty tiny particles of matter. And they got a they got a nucleus with neutrons and protons and and they got on the outer you got all of these orbits of electrons and the electrons have a negative charge and the protons have a positive charge and that holds everything together I wonder who causes that God most of this is empty space in an atom so you're actually made out of nothing now he called all of this in the universe he called it he said it was a living entity and he called it cosmos and that's the word in John 3.16, world. And the word world, for God so loved the world, does not mean for God so loved the earth, or for God so loved the dirt, or for God so loved, it doesn't mean any of that. It means an orderly arrangement. And this is what, so here's what, John the Baptist is doing and this is what Jesus is doing they're using their idioms that they can understand when they said cosmos Jesus said God so loved the cosmos this great orderly arrangement but the thing is it is masculine gender in John 3.16 so it doesn't mean he loved the political world he so loved, so is an adverb, tells how or what fashion he loved 
this great orderly arrangement of mankind since he only so loved it, but he didn't love it all because he only loved his family. He loved Jacob and hated Esau. And loved his agape, walking the commandments of God. Now, John the Baptist is standing on the banks of the Jordan River and he says, I baptize with water. Well, we'd have to stop and go go into proselyte baptism, wouldn't we? Right there. But we don't have time to do that tonight. So he says, I baptize with water. There comes one after me. He will baptize you with Holy Ghost. And ghost is the word P-N-E-U-M-A. Ghost. That's the same word as spirit. Holy Spirit. Numa. He will baptize you with holy numa and fire. Pur is the word fire. Pur. Holy numa and pur. Mr. Zeno, 350 years before John the Baptist is standing on the banks of the Jordan River, he said, What gave this cosmos, this great orderly arrangement of everything, what gave it life? This was Zeno's metaphor, saying, he said, what gave it life was Numa and Pur. And it meant, Holy Ghost and fire meant spiritual <coughs> life. Now the Pentecostals say, <coughs> if you baptize the God of the Holy Ghost, you jump up and down and scream and holler and fall on the floor and stand on your head. And... No, no. That was an official saying that was a cultural sociological saying in that day and time. And everybody that could hear, everyone that could hear John the Baptist speaking knew exactly what that meant. Now, let me give you some other things here. Without understanding this, you're going to be lost. Without understanding their culture, and it's books like this. This is called Compendia. They take this Latin title up here, Compendium Reroom, so forth, and they call this Compendia. Let me read to you what Compendia means out of a dictionary. Compendium, to weigh together. Com means together, same thing as soon or soon. A summary or abstract containing the essential information in a brief form. You cannot put all the Jewish culture in one book like this. Not possible. And then compendious means containing all the essentials in a brief form. Concise but comprehensive. So you can understand things. Let me read to you an introduction out of the compendia. I love these books. I wouldn't take any of them. They're expensive. But if you can get them, they're invaluable. They're just like the McClinican Strong. People don't study and don't read. That's why they've got all this imagination going on from their pulpits. In the introduction, let me read to you what this is about. It's just a one-page introduction. Let me read to you. These two... Opening volumes of the compendia. Talking about volume one and volume two. Here's volume two. 
Volume 1 and Volume 2. Now, I've got 11 volumes of the compendia. They're supposed to put something out every couple of three years, uh, but I haven't kept up with it. I don't know if they may have six or eight more since I bought my last ones. I'm going to check in and see if I can't find out because the men who wrote this are scholars and have researched and done an unbelievable amount of things. Let me put this definition back over here. I just wanted to read to you. It's a concise collection of things, but it's very comprehensive about what things are about. Now, these two volumes of the compendia are devoted to the political, cultural, and religious relia of the Jewish people in the land of Israel and the diaspora in the first century. That's an extremely important word, diaspora. When the Jews refer to themselves, they call themselves D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. The diaspora, or diaspora, however you want to pronounce it, comes from the word dia and spore. Now, dia means the method, method, or avenue of sporing. A spore is a seed. And when you spore... When you are a farmer and you've got and you've got seed, you're just out there sporing, you're scattering seed. And God took after Israel, kept going after these gods, he brought in, I call it his farmer. His farmer was Nebuchadnezzar. And he caused Nebuchadnezzar to scatter Israel to scatter southern Judah all over the earth and he caused and he caused the Assyrian king to scatter northern Israel in 722 BC all over the earth well the Jews are all over the world does their God and his laws still apply when they're all over the world well yeah it still applies let let me turn over here to Take your Bible. And the key to what's going on here in Acts 2, you're going to find it out of these books that will tell you about the diaspora. All the Jews that are scattered all over the world, that's why when they became a nation again, May 14th, 1948, 14th, 1948, they had kept their their ethnic identity in all the cultures of the world. And having retained their cultural identity, when they became a nation again, they began to wake up and say, let's go back home to Israel. How could you say that when you've lived in Russia for a thousand years and all your ancestors who lived there or in, in Europe or somewhere in the world for thousands of years and you wake up one morning and say, let's go back home. That's not where you was raised. Israel wasn't. But they knew that's where they were going. So 
that's all in the mind of God what he arranged for them to do. Now, you'll understand this better with this explanation when we go to Acts 2. And I tell you, the key verse, before you can even read anywhere in it, is not the first verse of Acts 2, but it is the fifth verse of Acts 2. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men. Devout is the word eulabes, E-U-L-A-B-E-S. Eulabes. And that means they were committed to God. And they were all over the world where they had been scattered and I got this in fact it's in this book right here let me see here alright I took took this map this thing out of this map thing I got up here I took it out of this volume and Dan put this on this you see this right here I asked him to put it up here so we'd have it so you'd understand the Jews had to come back to three festivals and they had to come back to Passover. This is the law of God in the 23rd chapter of Exodus and two other places. They all had to come back for Passover uh, there in March, April. Pentecost, 50 days later, and then in the seventh month, September, October, they had to come back to the Feast of Ingathering, which was the same thing as the Feast of Huts and the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Ingathering, Feast of Huts and Feast of Tabernacles is all the same thing. Three titles mean the same thing. So they all had to come back, and they had to bring, they couldn't bring a sacrifice Everybody couldn't. If you're coming from Carthage, you can't bring a lamb all the way on a boat over here to Israel. So you had to bring a half shekel. They'll tell you about that in here. And that was laid down by the Jews. You had to bring a half shekel. So when you got there, you could buy a lamb at the temple. Nothing wrong with selling lambs at the temple. Everybody wasn't a shepherd. Everybody wasn't a... a, some were shopkeepers, some were fishermen, some were shepherds. They had all kinds of jobs. So since everybody didn't have a lamb, they had to bring a half shekel. And they were, they were sacrificing, like for instance, Passover lambs, made four, 400, 500,000 Passover lambs at one time. And so they would, and it, somewhere between 15 to 17 people could eat off of one Passover lamb. That comes out of here too. They'll tell you all of that. Did y'all think I made this up? I've been making it up. I read like a like a freak. I do constantly. I don't ever quit reading. And when you pick up my books, you'll see all kinds of post-it notes, and and I've got it all marked up. I even got a section that I printed out that I want to read to you from, just as if we were at a class in a seminary, so you can understand this. If if the Pentecostals don't read this, they don't know that what they're doing is foolishness in their churches. 
These were Jews from every nation under heaven. And they couldn't understand each other. And they'll tell you that in there here too. They couldn't understand each other because they were all speaking different dialects of the Koine language. So when they were there at Pentecost and Peter spoke, they all began to hear and their own tongue wherein they were born, their own dialect of the Greek Koine. The whole purpose of this, Peter says it, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days this would happen. Well, if the last days this would happen, then the last days were here at Pentecost, weren't they? This is that, that that Joel said would happen in the last days. Well, it's here at Pentecost. The last days didn't start around 1900 somewhere where somebody jumped up in a church and started jabbering in some jibber-jabber thing and called it tongues. That's not it. If you don't read something like this, you're not going to even know what's going on. Let me read a little more of this introduction, then I'll get to that. So, I took this map out of the compendium, put it up here for you. So you can understand what we're doing. And these are, notice all the arrows are pointing towards Jerusalem. This is where the Jews are coming back from all over the world. The main roads to Jerusalem, that's what it's saying. So there are Jews from every nation under heaven. Let me read a little more to that forward so you can understand what this is for. All right. An effort has been made here to record the main elements which represent a picture of this people, this people of the diaspora, within the framework of its religious and social institution in the world in which the people live. The lack of space within only two volumes, that's a lack of space, has prevented an exhaustive treatment of all sources and research literature. It may prevent a full understanding, but it has revealed what the tongues are about and what all these other uh, Jews of the traveling from all over the world are about. Even in those areas which have been covered, other subjects had to be entirely disregarded because they can't cover all the culture of the Jews in two volumes. The authors and editors have attempted to consider all the sources and researches and have striven to present as faithful and complete a representation as possible in two volumes. The subjects dealt with in the in the chapter of literary sources has been restricted to these two materials which are most fruitful for the chapters in these two volumes. Thus, Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, the discoveries of Qumran, Aramaic translations of the Bible, Targumum, have been have not been discussed in these two volumes. But I've discussed the Targumum and a lot of that Halakha and so forth with you on other subjects out of other volumes. Their principal importance lies in their representation of literary traditions and their witness to the history of religious and social thought because the authors of this section utilize these sources only incidentally it would be inappropriate to discuss them in the introduction to the section. Again, the Talmudic 
literature and the New Testament have been described as historical sources for these chapters. And then he goes into the oral and literary traditions, which would be the Halakha. And he'll say some things about the Halakha on here. I'm not going to read anymore. It's just to show you. It's an introduction to us. It's a composite yet expansive understanding of their culture and their sociological stand in life where they are. Now, what I'm going to do is take the section out of this book. It's called Relations Between the Diaspora and the Land of Israel. Those that have been dispersed all over the world, why they constantly come back. Let me read to you. This is the way some teacher and a professor in a seminary would teach you from a book. I'm going to read some of this to you. I don't expect you to buy it. They're probably well over $100 a volume. Because mine were about 100 and something when I bought them 30 years ago. I just began to get into it about 30 years ago. Now, the offering of the sacrifices of the Jews and Gentiles from the diaspora when I say the diaspora, you understand what that means. That's a collection of all the Jews that's been scattered all over the world because of their apostasy while they were a nation, going after all these gods that Constantine brought in the church and renamed Christ's Mass at the, at the Nicene Council in 325 A.D. All of it goes together. In fact, you even out of this, Israel's apostasy comes to 70 weeks of Daniel. Everything blossoms into one great big huge flower. Just everything goes in every direction from this. Now, so the key to the chapter is about verse 5. Jews from every nation under heaven. What are they doing there? They're, they were given the laws. They had to come back. And they're traveling from all over the world back to Israel for these feasts and they don't understand each other's languages now the chief source of revenue was the half shekel which all the Israelites had to contribute every year that's because they were traveling some so far off they couldn't bring a lamb or a sacrifice I started to say something I'll say it later the Pharisees held that the that the expenses of the public sacrifices could not be defrayed from the contributions of the individual Jews. Since the obligation of the sacrifice fell on Israel, the money of all Israel was to be used for offering of the public sacrifices. The great synagogue under Nehemiah resolved to take upon itself the charge of a third part of a shekel yearly for the service of the house of God, and that's in Nehemiah 10.33. Now, as regards to the payment of the half shekel, it is, that's for the sacrifices at these feasts. They, <coughs> I'll go ahead and say it. When the Lord gives them the, these feasts, he said, you cannot appear before me empty-handed. You've got to bring a sacrifice. That is the law of God of the Old Testament. That's why they had to have the half shekel. They're coming from a long way, having been scattered because of their sin. As regards the payment of the half shekel, it is difficult to say whether all the Jews in the diaspora paid their contribution as regularly as they did their living in Israel. I'm quite sure they didn't. 
now. Josephus speaks of the Jews of Babylonia. Well, wait, let me back up here. Philo, another historian, mentioned several times the huge number of half-shekels from the Jewish diaspora and says that there were collecting places in every city for the money for the sacrifices for these festivals that they were required to go to. That's not option to take your sacrifice. Which was then brought up to Jerusalem by groups of Jews for whom the journey was a festive occasion. Josephus speaks of the Jews of Babylonia who used Nisibus and the Hardia as centers, these are towns, for collecting the gifts dedicated to the temple of Jerusalem. Says that multitudes of Jews accompanied the convoys, brought their gifts to their destination. Convoy. They would come in convoys because they were coming by the millions to Jerusalem. What did they do with them? They, everyone had to leave their doors open according to the compendia until their house was full. Then they shut the doors. That meant we have no more room. You could not say, the compendia will tell you, they could not say, this is not a enough room. It's too tight a squeeze in here. Compendia says there could have been as many as 12 million Jews at the Pentecost of Acts 2. Where in the world did they put them? They were outside the city. You could go outside the city and you could see tents by the thousands out there, just as far as you could see. And they were camping out there and they were here and they couldn't even understand each other. A Jew that was coming from over here in Rome or in Philippi couldn't understand a Jew that's coming from Cyrene are from over here in Babylon. They couldn't understand each other. And the compendia addresses that. Because they all spoke a different dialect, not a Pentecostal tongue. It's just ridiculous how people don't want to even study this. The convoys who brought their gifts to the destination. We know they were in convoys because one day, Jesus was walking with his mother and father, and they didn't know where he was. He was just young, 12 years old. And uh, all of a sudden, he disappeared. How could he disappear in the crowd? He disappeared just... And he went back to the Pharisees, found the Pharisees, and his mother and father said, where's our son? Where's our son? And we've lost him. <laughs> you can't lose Jesus. And they went back and found him sitting with the doctors of the law, explaining the law to them. And they said, son, don't you know you've, you've frightened us? We, he said, wished you not that I must be about my father's business? Whew. What a statement. Now, let me read on here. If you don't know about the convoys and the millions of people coming, you're not going to have any idea what they're talking about, are you? And they attacked the, uh, let me read here. The convoys who brought their gifts to the destination in Proflaco, Cicero, relates that Flaccus, 
during his period of office as Roman governor in Asia, 62 to 61 BCE, attacked the Jews of Asia Minor who used to send the half-shekel to Jerusalem and confiscated the money. Tanatic sources, not the Tanai, was what they called this whole program of the Jews coming back and arranging the that was actually the Pharisees had been the rabbis of the Babylonian synagogue and had come up with all of these sayings of the Halakha and the Haggadah. Tanatic sources speaking of the expenditure of the shekels by the treasury <coughs> the shekels ought to, ought to the half shekel has to clarify something for you. It has to clarify the fact that when Jesus went into the temple, turned the tables upside down of the money changers. If you don't know that the money changers were the Pharisees at the temple or the synagogue, and they said if you offered any sacrifice, the standard of money exchange was was Greek money in their empire. It was not Hebrew the Hebrews did this on their own they said you have to buy the sacrifices with our money and you're going to have to exchange your money for our money and they were giving them a real low rate of exchange if Canada's having a really hard time and you cross the border at Canada I have gone over the border at Canada and you have to get some money to spend in Canada and at the time I went over they only gave us like 70 cents on the dollar but you have to accept that if you're going to spend anything in Canada. They were exchanging with these people, the money changers, and they're saying, and the Pharisees saying, you've got to buy it with Jewish money. Well, you're not going to know that without reading something like the Compendia. You're not going to even know that. And people will say, well, you don't have to be selling in the church of God. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about you don't have to be cheating people in the church. And they were cheating people by exchanging them a low rate of exchange money. And that's why Jesus come in, turned the tables upside down and said, My father's house is a house of prayer and you made it a den of thieves. You're stealing from the people. They got to buy these lambs, sell them to them. Because that is required at all the feasts. Nothing wrong with selling a lamb in the temple. It's ridiculous for somebody to say, You can't set up anything and sell it in the temple. You're ignorant too. Now, let me read some more. Let me let me cut this down and go over here and read some. All right. In the land of Israel itself, this participation also found expression in the division of the country into twenty-four districts. There were twenty-four high priest divisions in Israel. So they divided it up. Corresponding to the 24 high priestly courses, you find that in the 24th chapter of 1 Chronicles. Then he says, It was held that no one's sacrifice would be offered unless he was present at that sacrifice. The delegation then represented the people. The judges sitting regularly in the temple and so on, all their salaries were paid out of the funds provided by the half shekel. Now, the contribution of the half shekel was not regarded by the Jews or by their foreign rulers 
as a gift or free will offering, but as a kind of tax which established the bond by which the returning Jews were linked to the temple and to Jerusalem. The matter of the half shekel brings up the question of the pilgrimages for the three feasts. Pilgrimage, this is a pilgrimage. They're all coming back, speaking different dialects and glossa. You think the Pentecostals want to study that? No. The half shekel, three times in a year, all your males appear before the Lord. Let's look at those places. Exodus twenty three twenty seven. Exodus twenty three, and this is gives you the wording right here. Out of this compendium. Exodus twenty three. Now, this is before they get apostate and get going after idol gods. But is this going to apply after they're scattered all over the world? Well, certainly it is. God's word doesn't change because they go off after their own foolish ways. His word don't change. They're scattered all over the world because they went after Baal in the grove and Shemash and Molech. And God scatters them by Babylon and Assyria. Then puts them under Persia, Greece, and Rome. And they're scattered. And they've got to come back to these feasts anyway because it's Bible. It's God's Word. Now here in 2327. Exodus. All right. No, wait a minute. They have it written down wrong. Yeah, it's 14. Yeah. They have it written down wrong in the compendium. Once in a while, you'll find something that's written down wrong. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. That is the same thing as Passover. Let me show you how you prove that, okay? Hold your place there and look at Luke 22. Luke 22. Now, I know that because I know what it's about. But here's the way you can prove it to yourself. Luke 22. Twenty-two and one. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. So the feast of unleavened bread is the Passover, right? Now let's back up to the twenty-third chapter of Exodus. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days. The first day of unleavened bread was the Sabbath, and the last day of unleavened bread is the Sabbath. As I commanded thee in a time appointed of the month Abib. You're going to be confused with that because you're going to, you're going to hear me say Passover was a Nisan. Abib was the Jewish name for Nisan. Nisan was the Babylonian name where they were carried into captivity. So Abib and Nisan are the same. But you're not going to know that reading this, are you? For it is in it thou camest out from Egypt... And none shall appear before me empty. That needs to be in bright lights. When you come, bring your Passover lamb. Or send some money if you're coming from a long way that you can buy one. That's necessary for that to be there. And the feast of harvest, the feast of first fruits. Feast of first fruits was another name for Pentecost. 
It was called the Feast of Weeks. It was called the Feast of Weeks because it was seven sets of seven weeks. That's 49 days. And the 50th day after that, from Passover to Pentecost, was Pent means five, and Pentecost is the 50th day after the Passover. You have to know that. Now let's go back over here. The Feast of Harvest. And then he says, the Feast of Harvest. Harvest is the end of the crop season. When does that come? In Tishri. In Tishri, and that is September, October. And the tenth day of the seventh month, tenth day of the seventh month, that's the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement was coupled with the Feast of Huts, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Ingathering, and Feast of Ingathering, Tabernacles, and Huts are the same thing, different titles for the same feast. And they're all having come back. These are the males. Do you think because they got scattered and they went after their ways, they don't have to do this anymore? Yes, they do. So they're all coming back, speaking a different dialect, or speaking a different gloss of foreign language, and it don't have anything to do with Pentecostalism. If you want to be ignorant about your ways, you go ahead. I'm not going to be. And he says, Feast of Harvest, Feast of Harvest, the end of the harvest is in October. October the 31st was considered the end of the harvest. And that's where you had All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, right? That's what it's about. Which thou hast sown in the field, the feast of ingathering. See, he calls the feast of harvest, the feast of first fruits, the feast of ingathering, which is the end of the year or the end of the harvest year. You have to understand that too. They had a they had a festival year that went from Nisan to Tishri. That was a seventh month that was a seventh month year. It started in the spring, March, April, and ended at the end of the harvest in September, October. And for seven months they were growing crops and harvest them. And always think of 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 Deuteronomy twenty eight. Lord's making his covenant with Israel. He says, if you're obedient to me, your children will be healthy. You'll have crops, all you can eat. And and you will go against your enemy one way, and they'll flee seven ways. All you got to do is obey me. That's it. You know, I believe that applies to our life. We won't win the way we think we ought to win, but we will win. And you'll learn to be happy with your winning however it comes. Now, I'm not going to go into the other chapters, 33, 23, and Deuteronomy 16, 16. It says the same thing, these three festivals. Now, let me read about the three festivals, okay? This comes out of the compendium. <coughs> three times in a year shall all the males appear before the Lord. However, as will be explained, this was not the actual practice of all males. Well, they weren't all committed. They were all devout. Uh, it was a precept which could be fulfilled on any of the three feasts. The obligation 
was only felt to be binding insofar as it was practical to do so. The, the individual fulfilled it more or less frequently according to the closeness of the land of Israel, his possibilities and his devotion to the commandments. Pilgrimages were made in larger or smaller groups. If you went out on the road right before Passover and you were over here, you were just say down here somewhere in Egypt and you went out on a highway that's leading all the way around to Israel, you could back off several miles and see millions of people going down the road at once. And they're heading toward Israel. And they're all speaking different dialects and glossa. And they don't even know how to communicate with each other unless they go in convoys and bring some of the people from their hometowns with them. It's the only way they're going to be able to communicate. What did they do about that? They'll tell you. Because that was going on hundreds of years. They didn't know how to overcome it. Now, he says, pilgrimages were made in larger, smaller groups from every place. And you're going to find that all through examples in, when they're coming to these festivals. Where there was a Jewish community, Philo, historian, who must have made the pilgrimage himself at least once, since he recounts his experiences on the way to Jerusalem, says in one place, thousands of men from thousands of cities streamed to the temple from for every feast. Thousands are coming. Some from the east and west came from the north and south. The half-shekel was brought to Jerusalem by groups and convoys, which as we see meant in practice pilgrimages. Let me go over here. We see from this halakha, he begins to talk about the halakha. Now, halakha would set up certain rules that would contradict the Old Testament. So you have to understand that, but since we've studied the halakha here, then you won't have a problem with that, will you? No. Those of you that understand the halakha. We see from this halakha that only that not only were there group pilgrimages, but in many cases, at least the Sanhedrin, which is the judging council in Jerusalem. Do you think those people were so simple-minded they didn't have a government and a method and taxing system and everything set up in an exact order, and they were just heard some people jabbering down there in so-called Pentecostal tongues? It's like... Complete disorder. Convoys due to reach the city. Pilgrimages and convoys did not exclude others made individually or small groups. There is plenty of evidence for pilgrims going singly or individual bands. In keeping with the large number of festival pilgrimages from the diaspora, it appears that synagogues of various communities from the diaspora were established in Jerusalem in the century or so preceding the fall of the temple. They started building synagogues so that the people coming from from Ekbatana or coming over here would they might build a synagogue for Ekbatana or build a Philippian synagogue in Jerusalem so the people from Philippi can come over here and go to their Philippian synagogue and they can fellowship with people that are there that speak their language. 
They were doing that 200 years before Christ. They had the confusion of languages then, but when Peter preached in Acts 2, God unconfused the languages with the ear, not the mouth. How hear we every man in our own dialect wherein we were born? If you don't study this, you never have any idea what it's about. Tonatic sources in the Acts of the Apostles furnish us with noteworthy lists of such foundations for our period. Synagogues of Jews from Alexandria, Egypt, Tarsus are mentioned in Talmudic literature, and synagogues of free men, the Cyrenians, the Cilicians, men of Asia, are mentioned in Acts 6 and 9. The evacuations conducted by Will on Mount Ophiel disclose the remains of large structure dating from Roman times. Now, let me see here. Where do I need to go? The pilgrims. Why do they have so much to say about the pilgrims? Because they were all required to come back without understanding each other's languages. The pilgrims, and more particularly the pilgrims from the diaspora, did not travel to the feasts every year. Some of them undoubtedly looked forward to the pilgrimage for many years in advance and made preparations accordingly. And you'll find, let's look at Matthew 7, uh, 27, 32. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 32. But you're not going to be able to understand this if you don't know anything about the sociological structure of Israel in that first century. 27 and 32. Matthew 27. All right. Now, Jesus is being crucified. Let me start reading here in verse 29. When they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon Jesus and took the reed and smote him in the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put it on his raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear the cross of Christ because it got too heavy for Jesus. And he was some Cyrene. He was one of the pilgrims coming over there for those festivals. It's, but you're not going to know that, are you, if you don't, they don't set this up for you. All right. And I believe I got another one here in Luke 2, 41. Luke 2. Luke 2. Luke 2, 41. Now, speaking of Jesus, well, let's read 40. Speaking of Jesus, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and filled and filled with wisdom and grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. When they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Why? He was in a convoy. Who's walking along by himself somewhere. But they supposing him to have been in the company that they were in, in the group of people. When a day's journey, they'd been walking a full day. And they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. When they found him not, they returned back again to Jerusalem seeking him because they were in convoys and groups. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. When they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you dealt thus? Have, why have you thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And Jesus said to them, How is it that ye sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? I was in the crowd, and you didn't know I left. That's how he disappeared from them. He's walking with a convoy. But you're not going to know that if you don't study something besides the Bible. Now, let me finish reading some of this. The pilgrimages to the feast served as occasions for the study of Torah under the sages, and this is, of course, required a longer stay in the city. Let me say this. Since it was 50 days from Passover, only 50 days from Passover to Pentecost, and some guy lives over here and he's a Jew and he lives up here in Carthage or in Neapolis over here in Italy, it would be a waste for him to come down here and take a couple of weeks to get there and then <clears throat> come back home. And as soon as he gets home, he's got to turn right around and go back. So a lot of them would stay here in Jerusalem and study with the masters over that time period. Now, they could go back home if it was after Pentecost all the way to Tishri, which was the feast of in gathering, so forth. So it depended on if it fit their lifestyle, if they could stay or go. Now, the pilgrimage to the feast served as occasions for the study of Torah under the sages. And this, of course, required a longer stay in the city. Some pilgrims, however, came to Jerusalem for the express purpose of studying Torah. This is what happened in the case of Paul of Tarsus coming from the town in Cilicia and remaining a long time in Jerusalem to study the Torah under Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder. And you can find that in Acts 22 and 3. He studied under Gamaliel. There they could... Let me finish reading this. The existence of the synagogues mentioned above and the hostels beside them not merely lightened to the expenses of pilgrims to the feast, but also helped them in arranging to settle down in the country. There they could meet people who spoke the special dialect of the region they came from. How here we every man in our own dialect when we were born. 
I hope this don't bore you because this is very important to know. It stops Pentecostalism dead in its tracks. They could get good advice and so on. Further, these synagogues certainly served as centers where the contacts were made between diaspora communities and Jerusalem. Help and advice was given about sending people to the communities abroad and other relationships of this nature were set up, which will be discussed later. The burial caves in the neighborhood of Jerusalem have provided a number of Jewish inscriptions which indicate that the persons in question came from the diaspora. They were buried there in Jerusalem. What were they doing buried there if they're from some other land? explains that. One inscription refers to Mara, the wife of Alexander of Capua. A burial cave on Mount Scopas provides an inscription referring to justice from Chalcis. A number of inscriptions refer to Jews who came from Palmyra, as may be seen from the language and the script of the inscriptions. One inscription refers to a proselyte named Miriam from Delos, and another one of Judah from Lacedaemon. Another inscription speaks of the tomb of Alexander Nicanor and his son, saying that Alexander had made gates of bronze for the temple and brought them to Jerusalem. A burial cave from Kidron Valley contains Greek, Hebrew, and bilingual inscriptions. Only Jews from Cyrene were buried there. There are also inscriptions referring to Jews from Africa. In no case is there reason to think that these people whose bodies had been brought to Jerusalem for burial. For the period in question, we have no evidence of any such custom or any value being attached to the burial in the land of Israel. The people in question were diaspora Jews who had come on pilgrimage, had died during their stay in Jerusalem. You see that? People had died when they come to these festivals, so they buried them there. Or they were diaspora Jews who had come to pass their last days at Jerusalem. The notion of going to Israel and settling down there was important. There was never a time when Jews did not go up in larger or smaller numbers to the land of Israel and Jerusalem. The general picture given in the second chapter of Acts of the Apostles describing the activities of the Christian community in Jerusalem at Pentecost begins by saying, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. How else would you start it? Understand that? That's why I say that's the most important verse. Verse 5 of Acts 2. Start with that. There were Jews from every nation under heaven. I've heard Pentecostals talk about jabbering in tongues, and they don't even have any idea what they're talking about. And none of them ever mentioned there were Jews from every nation under heaven. These Jews, as the sequel shows, look, go over that Acts 2. You can't even understand Acts 2 if you don't know anything about the diaspora, can you? You know, I've never heard anybody that understood Acts 2, never heard of Baptists. They don't believe in Pentecostal tongues, but they don't know how to explain it because they've never studied what I'm studying here. I've been studying these compendia for years and years, decades. Then he says here, 
when he makes this statement, these Jews are the, in the sequel. The sequel is what follows how here we ever man our own tongue in verse 8. There were Parthian Jews, Medes Jews, Edomite Jews. This is verse 9. Dwellers in Mesopotamian Jews, that's Babylon. Mesopotamia is, is down here in southern southern Iraq. That's Mesopotamia down here between the rivers. I'll turn it back there. It's If you really want to know the Bible, get information about the Bible, about the people during the first century. Now, he said there were Elamite Jews, dwellers of Mesopotamian Jews, Judean Jews, Cappadocian Jews, Pontus Jews, Asian Jews, Phrygian Jews, Pamphylian Jews in Egypt, Egyptian Jews in all parts of Libya, Cyrene Jews, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our glossa, the wonderful works of God, and our foreign languages. That's how you're going to pull out of when Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet uh, Joel. And the last days, the Lord's going to part of his spirit, which is the truth on all flesh. How's that going to happen with these Jews? Every one of them are going to go back home. They're going to hear Peter preach the resurrection. In their, they're going to hear with their ears and their dialect of the Koine. This Cyrene is going to hear it in his dialect. And he's going to go back and preach the message that he heard Peter preach in his own dialect. And these are going to be the Gentiles that he's going to be preaching to. That's what that means. It's not as hard as what people think. <coughs> now, so all these Jews were there, and then Peter says down here, they said these men are drunk. And Peter's standing up in the with the eleven, in verse 14, lifted up his voice and said, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be ye known unto this known unto you and hearken unto my words. These are not drunk as you suppose, seeing as but the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days the Lord would pour out of his truth on the Gentiles and these Jews are going to take this back home when they go home in the language they heard it in and they're going to preach it in that language that was a miracle of the ear not a miracle of the tongue all right how much time do I have Mike I'm going to read some more of this to you out of this uh, out of this compendia I don't. I couldn't put this in words better than what they wrote it down. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men, Jews from every nation under heaven. These Jews, in the sequel, we read that. Then he says, another text. Well, let me just give you. I gave you Simon the Cyrenian. Let's go over here to Acts eight. This will help you some too. Acts eight. All right. This is about the Ethiopian unit. Let's start here in uh, verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, 
Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethi- uh, a man of Ethiopian eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasures, had come to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah God. You've got to understand what he was doing. He wasn't an Ethiopian eunuch living in his paganism. He came up there. Now, the, the compendium will tell you that when they were going to proselyte baptize, they did it at one of these feasts. They would have a proselyte come and they would... Remember proselyte baptism? If you're from Ethiopia, Ethiopia's down here under Egypt, right down here. And you want to come to Israel to be a Jew. Or you want to come from Corinth to be a Jew. You had to do three things. You had to be circumcised. You had to be washed in water. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. He was doing a proselyte process. And you had to offer two turtle doves. That would make you a proselyte Jew. You would be a you would be a Gentile, but now you've been made a citizen of Israel, a proselyte. That's what this Ethiopian eunuch is wanting for, because he's been to Jerusalem and the Pharisees there have been telling him he needs, if he wants to become a member of this kingdom of God, he had to go through this process right here. (coughs) The circumcision was not necessary. He was a eunuch. His genitals had been removed. So the only thing he needed to do was be washed in water and offer two turtle doves at Jerusalem. He's coming to one of the feasts. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot. And he read Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go down, go near and join unto him this chariot. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what these thou readest? Now what's he doing reading the Old Testament? Because the New Testament was in the making and it wasn't even finished yet. He's reading the scripture because he believes God. And he said, how can I accept some man should guide me? And he decided, Philip, that he would come and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shear, so it was not his mouth. That's the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speakest the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached to him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. 
what doth hinder me to be baptized in water? Philip did not tell him to be dipped in water. He did not say it. He had been getting the word from the Pharisees and the Jews didn't stop all their rituals till 70 A.D. And this is long before 70 A.D. That's when the temple was destroyed. That's when Masada took place. And that's when Rome came in and slaughtered Israel and carried them away finally. Didn't allow them to come into Jerusalem, changed the name of Jerusalem to Capitolina for 200 years a Jew couldn't walk in Jerusalem streets. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest existen. E-X-E-S-T-I-N. You're permitted to. He didn't say this was any kind of a requirement. You're permitted to come into Israel because they were keeping all the rituals of Israel till 70 A.D. All the Jews were. Even Paul was rushing to get back to Jerusalem to Pentecost in the 20th chapter of Acts. But they said, let's don't saddle the Gentiles with all this ritual that we're doing. I've gone through that great to great degree let's don't saddle the Gentiles with any of our rituals but we'll keep doing them and it was a matter of natural patriotism that's all it was about and I could talk about that all day where they said let's go back and baptize these Gentiles when Paul finished up his trip his first trip up to up to Galatia Antioch Iconium Derby and Lystra up here He's coming back and these Judaizers said, let's go back and baptize these people. He said, no, we're not going to do that. No more water. He said, not the water, forbid. It doesn't say who can forbid water. It says, not the water, stop. Now, Philip said, if thou believest all thy heart, you're permitted to. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, that was also in one of the festivals that they were coming back to. Let me read the rest. I can't read all of this. I just don't have time. I thought it's better for me to read this to you. The Jewish Christians who were compelled to leave Jerusalem after the persecution of Stephen included from Cyprus and Cyrene and Simon who was forced to carry the cross of Jesus was a man of Cyrene. He was from here. The one that carried Jesus' cross. What's he doing over there? Coming to the festival, trying to honor everything he's supposed to as a devout Jew. Now, the law of the pilgrimages in Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16, insists on the command of three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord. The commandment was was interpreted to mean that the temple sacrifices, pilgrimages to the feast, and the visit to the temple were enjoined solely on men. But in fact, a large number of women would be involved in this. Now, proselytes who went to Jerusalem on the occasion of the feast festival pilgrimages, proselytes behaved exactly like Jews in all manners, and there is no reason to suspect that they thought less of the pilgrimages. Proselytes were found in the religious associations in Jerusalem. One halakha, for instance, says that an association 
for the eating of the Passover sacrifice must not be composed entirely of proselytes. It seems that the act of conversion was frequently linked with pilgrimages to feast. But in many cases, the proselytes chose to go to Jerusalem to complete their ceremonies and to be washed in water. Echoes conversions taking place during the pilgrimages are to be found in the Midrash and in discussion. The Gospel according to John in the account of Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem we read that among those went up to worship to the feast, some were Greeks. At the feast of Pentecost, a Gentile Christian, Trophimus, stayed with Paul in Jerusalem. In another text, the Acts of the Apostles, we read about the Ethiopian eunuch who was in charge of the treasure of Queen Candace coming to Jerusalem to worship God. The Talmudic Halakha, now, you can't always believe everything they say, but some of the things they, believe, they say is true. But if they contradict the Old Testament, the Halakha will be wrong. The Halakha rules that the practice of paying priestly dues and tithes from the soil does not obtain outside the land of Israel. That's their opinion. Any religious duty that depends on the land may be observed in the land. Now, during the first hundred years of Second Temple, it was common practice to bring to Jerusalem in the temple not only gifts connected with the altar, such as first fruits, but also priestly dues and tithes, which were given to the priests and Levites without passing through the, the temple in the land of Israel. And that is all I'm going to read from this. I hope this will clarify some of this to you, what Acts 2 is about. It's about the diaspora. Can you see that? And it takes a lot of thinking. You can't just say, well, let's just, let's just speak in tongues. Ignorant, ignorant, dumb. People just... You cannot study this without knowing what this is about. Now let's go back to Acts 2. Do I have any time, Mike? Huh? I'll finish reading... We finished up. Now, if I explain anything in Acts 2, I probably said things to you up here that nobody in America is saying. They don't want to offend the Pentecostals. Pentecostalism is paganism. Practicing things that is just heathen. They take these words and twist them to what they want them to be. Now, the key to this whole thing is what is Peter preaching when he's preaching and they're hearing it in their own dialect? He's preaching the resurrection. That's what he's preaching. He's not here preaching Shandalamandai Kandai, Shandai Diddly Bop, Boopity Bop. Now he's not preaching that. A bunch of garbage. Some of y'all raised around Pentecostalism, weren't you? Huh? You were raised around Pentecostal, weren't you? It's a bunch of garbage. What do you do with the diaspora and all these people from every nation under heaven and with all this and with all of these men that don't understand each other and the building of all of these and the building of all these synagogues even up to two hundred years prior to Christ 
they were building synagogues so when they'd come here they could understand each other by going to their respective synagogues in Jerusalem they had them all over Jerusalem it was simply so they could connect when they would come together boy somebody made this awful simple haven't they foolishness and it's what's so interesting verse 3 there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire the word cloven gosh it's the word dia marizzo dia m-e-r-i-z-o dia marizzo means petitioned off tongues they're split only in this fashion they're petitioned off the Ethiopian tongue is here Ethiopian and the Babylonian tongue of the of the dialectos of the dialects they're petitioned off so the people listening to the Ethiopian the one listening to the Babylonian one that listened to the Philippian speaker they're hearing in their own dialects wherein they were born Diamorizo means to petition off it don't mean this goofy thing you'll see in a Pentecostal and color it red and put it over the head of one of these people a tongue of fire a tongue of fire was when the word of God was preached so hard it scorched the people. It's the same thing that Jeremiah 5.14 says, Is not my word a fire and Israel is wood and it will devour them? That's what a tongue of fire is. God says over there in the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah, is not my word like a fire and it'll be like a hammer that breaks everything in pieces what they had it was preaching the truth sharp coming out of their mouth that's what it was talking about it's not talking about there's fire over their heads good night it's what are you going to do with the diaspora and all the rest of these convoys and all of this? What are you going to do with all that if Pentecostal tongues is true? You're not going to do anything with it. It's history. You've got to throw history out the window to believe some of the things they're saying in these churches. I've never heard anybody that studied proselyte, proselyte baptism, but I've never heard anybody study the beliefs of the Pharisees when they were contradicting the word of God in the halakha I never heard anybody but gosh it's all through my books I've got a hundred books with halakha and the books of the sages you got two volumes just on the on the sages sage a sage is a wise man and they were calling those men of the synagogue wise men well that's a terrible title to put sage on front of a, of a Pharisee book now and when they he goes on to say they're all filled with the Holy Ghost as the Spirit and begin to speak with not other jibber jabber other hetero glossa begin to speak with other tongues hetero 
H-E-T-E-R-O-G-L-O-S-S-A. Gloss is foreign language. We get the word glossary from that. Being a reader, I got all kinds of books with glossaries in them. A glossary is a section of the book, usually in the back of the book, and it has these words that are difficult for the ordinary man to understand. And he goes back there and looks looks up a word and finds out what it means. It's a glossary. Glossary means foreign language. Whenever you're reading something that says the gloss stage, that means the actual language stage, a gloss comes from the word glossary. Have anybody ever read something that said the gloss speaks of so-and-so? The gloss, it means the language, the foreign language. The gloss. Hetero, that's not an English word. Heterosexual means other sex. Heteroglossa means other foreign language. That's a Greek word. It's, you know how frustrated I get? <laughs> Listen to these people preach, and they don't have sense enough. God gave a goose in a snowstorm, a blind goose in a snowstorm. It's like, good grief, you people. But they don't believe in studying anything. They just, well, they just speak with other tongues. The Spirit gave them utterance. Utterance is the word apophathangomai. A-P-O-P-H-T-H-E-G-G-O-M-A-I. That's the word utterance. It means to speak so clearly as to be easily understood. It's the same word in verse 14. Peter lifted up his voice and said. Same word as said. He didn't say, Shandalakandai. He said, you men of Judea. You know what it's like? It's like going out on a playground and all these grown men are in suits and got ties on. They're going, you know, yes, Shandalakandai to you. Let's play in the sandbox. It's like you're listening to children. It's ignorant. Of course, they don't care what these words mean. I guess I'm about out of time, ain't I? Am I out? (laughs) I guess I'll have to quit and come back. I, I hope I can help you by showing you these compendia books. They are magnificent. If you're willing to stop and read them and concentrate on what they're saying, you're going to find out the whole lot of things that's going on in the churches is just a bunch of garbage. Ain't no wonder. Do you know that Pentecostal people are just on the verge of insanity? I'm telling you, I've been in, I've been in them all over America as a gospel singer. They're on the verge of jumping off because they are believing stuff that is utterly insane just don't care what anything means and the Baptists won't study to find out what it means we don't agree with that what does it mean well I don't know but we don't agree with that (laughs) boy are we in a crazy world let's pray Lord thank you for truth God I really thank you for causing me to be willing to dig into these things because it's not me it's been you over all these decades Lord, help us. We're in a hard time for people to live 
in this truth when the world doesn't want it. Give us strength to stand. Lord, give me strength to keep teaching. Give me health for years to come. Fight our battles for us, Lord. We've got people trying to bring us down and help us in everything we do. We trust you with it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If y'all want to look at these books, you can come here and look at them. But they are really some of my favorite books. Huh? Well, it's just called the Compendia. It's by Van Gorham Fortress Press. And it's not by one particular man. It's an effort on the part of a whole lot of men. You, you, what you do is you look... You just look for the Jewish people in the first century, volume one and volume two. It'll say edited by S. Safari and M. Stern in cooperation with D. Fluser and W. C. Van Unick. You just you need. I was talking to that guy. You just got to write this down and ask. You can go to Ralph White out at Logos Bookstore across town and tell him you want some of these. But you don't want all the compendia. You want the first two volumes about the Jewish people in the first century. You need to write this down. What? Those are about 60. Huh? Those are about 60, right? I think they're more than that. I, I paid... I paid somewhere around a hundred dollars or so for mine. That was thirty years ago. What about that printout? Do you? you a, I want to kind of read that. Do you want to make a copy? I can pay you to make a copy of it. Yeah, well, I'll make a copy and bring it to you. Okay. I'll make. I'll make. I'll have. I'll tell you what. I'll. I'll take it to. Uh, I'll take it down to. Uh, Home Depot or not Home Depot. I have down to Office Depot. Oh, okay. I'll take the Office Depot and have some made. Yeah, I'll uh, pay for it. I'll, I'll, whatever it costs. It don't matter. I'll make. I'll have it made and bring one to you. Okay. Okay. Uh, so in Acts 15, I was reading when Paul and Barnabas uh, they were discussing if they should circumcise. Go, go back and baptize those Gentiles where they preached back there, and, and they said no. That's they when went the, to the apostles and the elders and they said... James said no. James was head of the council and Peter said no and Paul said no. And Paul said in Acts, 14, Acts 40, I'll get it right in a minute. And over in Acts uh, 10.48, he said... Not 10.48... He said, what I need to do is sit down and talk to you because it takes some time to go through all this. Maybe I can, I'll try to get some of these made tomorrow. Okay. Now the women, what about when they wanted to be a part of Israel? Well, they couldn't be circumcised, but they could be washed in water and uh, they could offer two turtle doves. So they would they could come into Israel also as a proselyte. 
but nobody knows anything. See, nobody studies about where the Pharisees come from. They were the rabbis of the Babylonian synagogue practicing that halakha worship. Well, it is. It's, I never heard anybody even deal with what the Pharisees believed. And I got books on Halakha and Haggadah. Have you got any of our messages on that? And it's just, it's crazy. This is out of, this is out, this right here is out of uh, uh, Life and Times of Jesus and Messiah. And he goes in here and talks about circumcision, baptism, and sacrifice to become a proselyte Jew. It's just, it's, it's in books everywhere. Preachers are lazy. They don't know nothing about it. They start reading about the law. I don't know what that's about. They just forget it. What are you doing? I can't say how to you. I, uh, we how you doing? About the, the Pentecostal, which they said, my God is not the God of confusion. So you may sit in those churches. They're nutty. Yeah, you get to like. Well, it, I like that. He, he won't confuse you like that. It has nothing to do. Like, it has nothing to do with that. It was the dudes of the diaspora speaking all these different dialects. Don't have anything to do with the Pentecostal saint. Nothing. You wouldn't be confused. They, you might as well be a Muslim to be a Pentecostal. That's how far off they are. They're crazy. I've been in hundreds of Pentecostal churches across America as a gospel singer. They're nuts. And what they do has nothing to do with the Word of God. Nothing. Even when you walk in, all the entertainment is just too much. But it's just, woo, we're ready for it to happen. It's so jumping up and down. And That's all it is. Where's the Word? Where's the preaching? Did you go to a Pentecostal church? I went to a few. It was a Catholic church down the street. My mother put me in a Lutheran um, grammar school, so elementary. <laughs> She put me in a Lutheran school, so I kind of, I, I got to say the prayer because I say the prayer over my meals because I say that prayer all the time, so I don't know if I'm doing, but I don't know if it has something to do with paganism or whatnot, but. Santa, thanking it. God for your meal don't have anything to do with paganism. Okay, I just want to make sure because I repeat what they talk about. <laughs> what are you doing, Andrew? How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing pretty good. Why are you starting this off? You said something about that. Okay, so when I went to a Lutheran school, when I went to a Lutheran school, I recite the prayer that they prayed over the food. So I'm like, I want to make sure my kids are taking it because it's all mixed in. It don't say too much. I'm well, That's what I want. We don't know. It's like, yeah. So maybe I need to stop and just say, God is good, God is great. Let's take it for you. Let's go to the simple day. I like it. I like it. Good talk, Jim. Good talk. <laughs> You're funny. Go to the simple day. I'm not supposed to She's hiding from you. Thank you. How are you doing? Sometimes this gets so intricately detailed. I hope people are listening. Yes, I'm listening and I'm enjoying it because now I can really, I mean, I've had conversations with people about tongues, but now this is so much more in depth. Well, when you realize it's about the diaspora, about Israel having to come back to Jerusalem. And to find in all those words like the cloven, tongues, the fire, and, because, I mean, pictures everywhere. Sometimes I don't go this much in depth, and I can't can't say it better than they've written it down in the compendium. Yeah, that, that's really good. 
I'm going to have some of these made up. This is uh, the one I read from tonight. That's in that first volume. I'm going to go to I'm going to go to uh, Office Depot and take this and have some made up for people who want it. And uh, huh? Yeah, I will. Uh, but I've underlined a lot of things and put some of the verses beside the put some of the verses over beside the margin about where you had some of these pilgrims. Luke two forty one forty two, uh, Matthew twenty seven twenty thirty two. That's the Cyrene, the guy from Cyrene carrying the cross of Jesus. I'll, I'll make some up. And uh, those are expensive books. A lot of people ain't going to want to buy those. They're pretty expensive. I, about 30 years ago, I gave about $100 a piece for these. They're not cheap. Yeah, they're put out by Van Gorsen Fortress Press. And they just call it the compendium. The Jewish people in the first century, volume one and volume two. Those are the good ones. Yeah. And but you got about you got a bunch more of of the compendia you don't want to these are the first two you want right here. Sheldon, what are you doing? Hey, you never you know it's so rare. Yesterday at work, uh what's today? Wednesday? Yesterday at work, this customer lady, she sounds so interested in the truth. She said to me, How do I know if I'm chosen in this and that? I said, Lady, it's so rare to find someone like you. Yeah. She took a little took your website down. The way you know is you change. That's how you know. When Paul said, I know whom I believe, he said, because I've been suffering. It's encouraging because we talk to so many people who don't want to hear it. Yeah. Somebody says, how do I know I'm chosen? Say, you know because you asked that question. I told her, I said, people don't talk like you. Normal people don't talk like you. Like you just asked me that. person who's not chosen would never ask me. That's right. They will never ask. How do I know I'm chosen? I'll take that tomorrow. Well, sometimes I'm hesitant to get into one of these real intricately intricate books because I don't want to put people to sleep. But I want them to know about, I can't put it in words like they put it into.
Uh, hold on. One more. Uh, Okay, he needs to know that I will have him arrested if he doesn't stop. Contact me whenever you wish till this is solved. Using my building for sleeping in open toilet is unacceptable. Who is that from? It's from Don. Huh? Don Mercer. Oh, about Victor? He's using his building for sleeping in? You need to show it to him. I know it's happened before. You need to show it to him. Huh? Okay. 